0: It was our privilege this morning to have Lyndall and Kay Browning with us today. Uh, Lyndall and Kay have had a great history with Grace Point here in their uh, missions ministry, but there may be some here who do not know Lyndall and Kay, and I want to make sure that you get to know them. Lyndall and Kay Browning have served in the Middle East since 1979. They have lived in Jerusalem, Israel, Amman, Jordan, Nazareth, and Bethlehem. Lindell has served as the field strategy coordinator for the Eastern Mediterranean, which includes work in Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, Iraq, Turkey, and some creative access countries. Kay, not only being a partner in ministry uh, with Lindell, she has served as administrative assistant, financial manager for the field office, and also has taught English as a second language, they are both graduates from All of That Nazarene University. Lindo graduated from Nazarene Theological Seminary with a M.Div., as well as Kay receiving her master's from Bethany Nazarene College. In 2014, All of That Nazarene University conferred both of them with an honorary doctorate. They have raised four children in the Middle East and now have nine grandchildren. The first time I got to know uh, Lyndall and Kay was when I was in high school. I had an opportunity to go on a trip to Israel. And as I was there, I I saw the the people of the land and began to see this land that is in the book that we read over and over throughout Scripture. and, And began to realize that many of the people there in Israel knew more about the history of the Bible than I may ever know. It's their family tree. It's their family history. And I remember being in a session where uh, Lindell was leading with some other team members there as he was the on-site missionary. The question was asked, how in the world do you evangelize in a a culture, and a context where they are so familiar with the scriptures and this is their family tree? And Without skipping a bead, I remember Lindell saying, you know, I've found that it's in our authentic, vibrant worship in our authentic, vibrant relationship with Christ that can't be counterfeited, that they begin to listen in different ways. And it's exciting for me to present to you Kay and Lyndall Browning, which what I think is their greatest attribute is they are authentic, vibrant worshipers of Jesus that have a relationship with Jesus that not only was when they started, but is still just as vibrant today. Would you welcome with me Dr. Kay and Lyndall Browning.
1: Thank you very much, Pastor. It's wonderful to be here with you tonight. We have had a long connection with you. Some of you may remember several years ago when Lonnie and Connie Norris were in uh, Volgograd, Russia, that our daughter Brittany uh, taught their children for three years. And so she made that connection, that family connection there, but she's always thought of you as being their home church, and they uh, spoke a lot of you, and uh, I know you sent a working witness team at least once there. But while she was there, but also you sent a work and witness team to us. And uh, I think I, I'm surprised that any of those work and witness team members even speak to me anymore. <laughs> it was the hottest summer uh, in all the time we were in Israel. And it was over 100 degrees the whole time they worked. In fact, some of them started working after dark so that it wouldn't be so hot. But it was very, very warm. And we got, they got a lot done. And I kind of just managed them and told them to do this and do that. But we had a lot of fun with them. But they were a great blessing to us. Thank you so much, and thank you, the Lord. First of all, we want to thank the Lord, but also thank the Church of the Nazarene for giving us an incredible life. We have lived in the Middle East because that's where God and the Church appointed us, but we have loved the Middle East because the people there, both the Arabs and the Jews, all of them won our hearts. And so today we're happy to share with you that you've been a part of this. It's not just us us coming to give you a report. But you have also been a part of this all these years because you prayed for us and you've given to global missions. So thanks for being a part of us.
2: If you're n- new to the Church of the Nazarene, you probably have already learned that we love to get together. And usually it's about getting together and eat. We love to worship together. But every four years in the Church of the Nazarene, there is this big gathering called a General Assembly where people come from around the world to share what God's doing. We do a little bit of, uh, of of business but we do a lot of worshiping and praise. Now we were able to be part of one of those. That was in Indianapolis in 2005 and it was a wonderful time. We brought with us about 10 people from the Middle East. We'd like to show you a video of one of the exciting events at that uh, assembly.
3: This is a historic moment in the history of the International Church of the Nazarene. Today, in a very dangerous place, people are dying. Iraq. It's happening every single day. But the work of the church goes on. And in spite of the dangers, the difficulties, and the persecution, there are those who have responded to the call and realized that ultimately there are no military answers. There are no political answers. The real answer is Jesus, the hope. That around me today, heroes of the faith, and now it's my privilege to tell you that the World Mission Department, under Dr. Louis Bussell of the International Church of the Nazarene, is presenting the nation of Iraq as the 150th country to be entered into by the Church of the Nazarene. But now another 2005 hero of the faith. The next in line, Pastor Aziz, pastor of the Baghdad Church of the Nazarene. Pastor, when you go home, will you please be sure to tell our brothers and sisters in Iraq, in the Church of the Nazarene, that we love you, that we're praying for you, that we believe Jesus is the hope, and one day there will be peace in your country, and many churches of the Nazarene. Amen. Hallelujah. I'd ask you now to bring us greetings from our people in Iraq.
0: Really, we want to thank you for your helping us to build the Church of the Nazarene in Iraq. God bless you.
3: Well, you've made history today, and I thank are to God for giving us people with this level of courage and commitment. And what does it say to the rest of us? Sometimes we talk about why we can't do better where we are because of all the obstacles that are there. Seems to me we have a few obstacles in a place called Iraq. And in spite of the obstacles, God is building His church.
2: Well, that was an exciting Sunday because the applause continued on for probably another 10 to 50 minutes. People were excited to hear good news coming out of the Middle East. Here we are 10 and a half years later, and we're telling you that there is still good news to hear from the Middle East. Now, if you know much about your biblical geography, you know that the city of uh, Iraq is in the area that the biblical story about Jonah and Nineveh takes place. It's one of my favorite stories. When I was a kid, it was about the whale and being swallowed by a whale. But I grew and learned to understand it was more about God's call and what God wanted to do. You see, Jonah was asked to go to Nineveh, but he did just the opposite. He didn't go east. He went west to the port of Jaffa because he didn't want to go to that place. I imagine he got to that port and said, get me on the first boat out of here. I don't care where it's going. But God persuaded him through the whale, spending a little time in a cold, dark, damp place, that he should do what he asked him to. Maybe we're like that sometime. I heard of a mother who was trying to get her son to get up and go. It was time to go to church on a Sunday morning, and after several calls, nothing happened. So she tried one more time. She stood by his bedside and said, You really need to get up. It's time to go to church. He said, I'll give you two reasons I'm not going. Number one, I don't think those people like me very much. And number two, I don't think I like them either. She said, Well, I'll give you two reasons you need to go. Number one, you're 41 years old. And number two, you're the pastor. So. <laughs> I've never had that problem with Lyndall. <laughs> but. I have to admit that I have argued with God a few times when he's told me to get up and go. Now, for a lot my being missionaries wasn't hard because we'd grown up in a church that talked about following and doing what God called. It, believe it or not, it wasn't hard to be missionaries. But let God begin to talk to me about an attitude I have. And I begin to argue with him and say, but if you only understood what that person is really like, you would. And I'm thinking, you know, like, who am I? to think that I know more than God. We're thankful for the time and the place and the years that we've had in a place where people have not been afraid to follow God, not been afraid to do what He has asked them to do.
1: After we completed our language school in Amman, Jordan, we uh, were assigned to go to Nazareth, Israel, and we lived there for seven years, raised our children there. It was a wonderful place to live, but right outside of the city of Nazareth is a very small village by the name of Mashhad. Meshad was the village that, or is the village that Jonah was from when he was growing up and as a man, where God spoke to him about, first of all, going to Nineveh. Now that's several hundred miles away from Nineveh. How did he in those days ever hear about the wickedness of those people? Because he refused to go. He said, I don't want to go. Well, in Jonah chapter 1, God, when he calls him, he says, I want you to go to that great city and I want you to preach against it because its wickedness has come up. Before me, now today, if I'd want to know what was going on, if I was in Nazareth or in Meshhad, and I wanted to know what was going on in Nineveh, I could Google it, or I could pick up my iPhone and just put in there what's going on in Nineveh today. Well, we uh, we have those kind of conveniences, but certainly Jonah didn't. But still, their evil was so great that uh, he had heard about it. In fact, that's the reason he didn't want to go. They were so evil. That Jonah really began to hate them. The Assyrians were there. They were over that large city, and it was at that time the largest city in the world. And uh, Jonah said he, as Kay said, he already he fled. But then when God had got a hold of him, he came there, and he really got angry with God because how they responded to his message. Because Jonah didn't feel like they would, they were worthy to obey the or to uh, receive the mercy and the grace of the Lord, and yet. And he told God in in Jonah chapter 4, he says, That's the reason why I didn't want to come. I knew you were going to do this. I knew if they repented, I knew you were going to receive them. I knew they were going to get mercy when they deserved justice for their wickedness. But I knew they were going to receive your mercy. I knew that you were a God of compassion and a God of love. Well, today, God is still a God of mercy and God is still a God of compassion. And he still wants to show mercy. He said to Jonah at the end of chapter 4, He says, Jonah, didn't you know I would be concerned about that great city? Well, not today. We look around the world, not just in the Middle East, not just in Iraq, but we look around and we see a lot of evil in the world. And God is saying to us, and he's saying to the church of the Nazarene, I want to make sure that those people there hear about me and that they are able to turn from their wicked ways. (coughs) Excuse me. But Jonah was angry with God. Now, I don't know if you realize it or not, but... The city of Nineveh today is still a modern city in the country of, of Iraq. It's a city that outside of Baghdad, because I'm sure you've heard of Baghdad, the capital of Iraq, you've also heard of another city. And that is a city in the north by the name of Mosul. It's a city where a lot of violence and a lot of of uh, killing has been going on. In fact, it's where the Islamic State or ISIS has, first of all, started out at, at uh, pushed into there, and that movement began there. When they drove many of the Christians out and they killed, executed the ones that stayed, they told them if they didn't convert to Islam, they would be executed, and many of them were. Well, today that city is a city that still there is a lot of evil. It's a city in the area of just right in the edge of Kurdistan where in the late 1980s, Saddam and his forces went in and killed uh, approximately 200,000 Kurds. And they uh, destroyed 5,000 villages. Well, it was in that area that the Church of the Nazarene got its start. Through Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, we asked a young man who was an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene, but also a building contractor. We asked him to go to northern Iraq and to help some of the Kurds rebuild some of those villages. And he did. And that's where I first entered into Iraq, I, I asked the Lord, I said, I really would love to go to the ancient city of Nineveh first. And so he let me do that. I went to Dahuk where Dan was living. We went into Mosul a couple of times, and, but Dan was able to share with them not only a hope for living quarters and shelter, but he also was able to share with them the hope of Jesus Christ for their lives. And the, um, and it was at that place where he met a couple of the Muslim background people who had come to Christ, and he started a Bible study, and that was the beginning of the Church of the Nazarene in Iraq.
2: The next place the Church of the Nazarene went was Baghdad. And you met Aziz in the video. He was the guy with the tall feathers sticking out of his hat. He doesn't dress like that all the time. He would fit in here. You would hardly even think anything about seeing him here. He would be unnoticed. And he has done a great job. Just briefly, his story is that after the first Gulf War, he fled... Uh, Baghdad. He was a single young man. He was a Christian. He went down to Jordan. He he really had a heart for God, and our pastors found him and began to nurture him and got him into Bible college, and when the war was over, he said, I want to go back to Baghdad and plant a church for you. He did a great job there for, oh, I guess it was about five or six Mm -hmm. years that he was there, but we got a phone call from him. I guess now it's about two years ago, and he said, Brother Lindell, I'm going to have to leave. My wife's health isn't good, and, and we're going to go to Australia where our, her family is. And, of course, we were concerned about that, and we understood, but we were concerned about the church there. There was only him there that we thought was trained to, to lead the church. And he said, but don't worry about the church. There is a, a layman in the church who I've been discipling, and he has promised me that he won't let the church close. His name is Tony. Now we had met Tony, and we were just so thankful that he had stepped up to the task. And Dene did a very good job. The church was full. We couldn't wait to see him again. When we were back in the Middle East, I guess it's been about 20 months ago now, we we were surprised to learn that he had come down, and, and it's not easy to travel from Baghdad down to Amman, Jordan, and Lundell was going to get to see him. He hugged him and embraced Lundell and He told him, you know, what God was doing. He said, you won't believe it. In these times, my church, of probably less than uh, 80 people, has raised $15,000 for a van. We still need more. And another $15,000, you know, do you know anybody can help us? And a a college friend, a Nazarene layman, had just asked us on that trip if anybody needed some help. And And we told him that with great excitement. He said, I'm going to go back and find a van. Well, it was then about the end of November, and it was cold there, and we were waiting to hear if he got the van. But instead of hearing that, we got a message that said, Brother Lindo, it came over the Skype and over emails to us by several people. He said, Brother Tony has been kidnapped, and we don't know what will happen to him, but please pray and have the church pray. And that's all we could do. We, we couldn't get any rescue squad together and the, they, were, they were asking a ransom and we couldn't pay a ransom but we began to have the church pray. And as they prayed, you know, I'm, I'm, I hate to say it, I'm the pragmatist and he's the man of great faith and we make a good pair when it talk, it's time to get stuff done, but I believed that God was hearing our prayers. And in 24 hours, and perhaps some of you prayed, I know that some of you prayed for his release. In 24 hours, he was released. He was dropped on the street with just his underclothes and a pair of flip-flops on. We wondered what would happen, and the word came that he needed to take a little time. He got had a vacation, I think, in Cyprus or someplace with his family. Of course, his wife's family wanted them to leave. He said, I need to pray what God wants me to do. Well, we didn't hear back, but by Christmas time, he was back at his church, and on his Facebook page was... The church full of people, and they were giving out Samaritan purses box, and the church was growing. And, and we followed him. He told us that he got that van, and the people are growing. And just last week, we saw pictures of him in his church in Baghdad being commissioned by the church. He's not ordained yet to keep that church going. He attended a regional conference that we had in, in, in Turkey, and his life is a testimony of God's faithfulness. In Aziz's church was another young man. His name is Armand. Now, Armand didn't want to go to church. His mom is was a very committed Arminian Iraqi believer. Her church closed. She was in Aziz's church. And she bugged her son and said, you've got to go, you've got to go. And finally, like the guy in my joke, bad joke at that, said, uh, he said, I'll go just to get you off of my back. When he got to church he began to hear what God could do for him and he realized that all that anger he had, all the, the things that have upset him in his country and his dad's his country was ruined, he said, That wasn't doing me any good. I needed the hope of Jesus and he gave his life to Jesus. Again our pastors are great. They said, Come down to oh Amen, go to Bible college. Why don't you just study and see what God would have you to do? In about, oh, I want to say about five years, he had finished his studies, and he said, I'm going to move my family to the north, to Dahook, the area that Lyndall talked about. He said, could you use me there? We said, sure we can. That Bible study's almost gone. Would you pastor that church? And his story is an incredible story of how he worked in that area. We could tell you how he found a group of so. If you can remember, a lot has happened in there, but the Christians began to be persecuted more in Iraq the last two years with ISIS growing strong. So many Christians have immigrated up there. But he found a group called the Yazidians, who are a, a, a I can't say, they're a religion that we're not, no, I don't know how to describe it, except that they worship Satan beca- out of fear. And they believe Satan has power, so they need to worship him. I, and he found them and began to tell them that Jesus is greater than Satan. And they believed. And he has a Bible study going in a village with them. And he, he put his sermons on the Internet, on YouTube. I could give you an address to look now and you could see his sermons. But it's been at great risk to him. Last summer, the, the, an extreme group went to his home and knocked on the door. And they, they said to him, you need to get out of there. We know what you're doing. You're giving out Bibles and forcing them to become Christians. And the Church of the Nazarene would never force anyone to become Christians. We would offer them Bibles and say, here, we'd like you to have this, but we would never try and force someone to convert. That's what he told them. They said, we don't care. We know what you're doing. You're going to have to get out of here in one month or else. Well, as that story trickled to us and we tried to get hold of him through Skype or something, there was no connection until finally we got a little message. I will... Be in touch with you, Brother Lindell, in September. Then finally, the, the, he got on Skype, and it, I was in the house, and I could hear him from across the room saying to Lindell, I'm so sorry, Brother Lindell." He said, I had to leave. He said, they came to my house with a machine gun and held it to my head and said, if you don't leave with your family, we will burn your heart. In Arabic, that's a, a metaphor for meaning we will kill your son. He said, I only have one son, and I let him go back and forth to school, and I just couldn't stay. He said, please don't be upset with me. Please don't be angry with me. And Lyndall said, I can't do that. You know, God's in charge, and God will use you, and we certainly understand. So he's gone to another neighboring country. He now has a church full of refugees in that other Middle East country, and wherever God sends him, he will do ministry, but his heart is still burdened for that city of Dahuk. We began to wonder there what would happen, and we just saw a picture a few weeks ago that there was God had raised up another person to keep that church and to going. We're so thankful for these men who are heroes of of the faith.
1: Many of the Christians have left the Middle East, and many of them have left the country of Iraq. About two-thirds of the Christians have left there because the war, actually before we got involved in 1991, the war between the Iranians and the Iraqis, went on for many years, and many people were killed, and so many Christians have left. Uh, About two-thirds of the Christians have left, actually, leaving about 400,000 Christians. Now, I did hear a report from some of our pastors that there are more born-again believers in the Middle East today than ever before. Even though many people have left, there are still more people coming to Christ. And I believe it is coming to Christ because... Our pastors and leaders, and when I say ours, I don't mean just the Church of the Nazarene, but many pastors and leaders have refused to leave. And they're staying there because they believe that God has put them there for such a time as this and for this purpose. Well, about five or six years ago, there was an Arab Spring that started in um, uh, Tunisia and then spread to Libya and to uh, Egypt, to Bahrain, and then on to to Syria. Well, many of the refugees had fled to Syria. Syria. And uh, there were maybe a million and a half refugees there in the country. Our five churches of the Nazarene were ministering to them. We had a school that was, we have a school that's opened in Damascus. And the teacher said, we want to stay in the afternoon and bring in refugee children and let them study, let them have something to do to keep them occupied because their their situation is so dreadful. So our school in Damascus started serving all of these young people. During this crisis in Syria, about 400,000 people have been killed. And that many of them were refugees from Iraq and, and from the, some of the other countries. But uh, we know that the church there has remained faithful. The church has been uh, doing all it can to reach out to these people. So many people are internally displaced inside the country. They say half the country of Syria, about 9 million people, have been, are either internally displaced or they have left the country as refugees. The majority of the refugees have gone to Jordan and to Lebanon. In fact, Armin, the one that she was telling the story about, is now pastoring a church of the Nazarene in one of the countries, one of those countries, and he is pastoring a, a refugee congregation, and the church is full of refugees that are coming to find Christ. So we really believe that this is a time where we need to stay steady, we need to pray, and we need to believe that God is going to, to work with those people who are there. We, um, we had a meeting in Jordan Uh, It was supposed to have been a district assembly, and uh, the pastor said, in the DS said, you know, we want to just have a a short business meeting, and then we need to talk, and I thought, well, yeah, you do, and we need to pray, so I asked him, I said, well, I, I think you're right, I think we really need to pray about what's going on, and I know that the persecution that's going on in Syria and Iraq is going to be coming, you're concerned it's coming to Jordan, and he kind of laughed at me, and he said, oh, we're not even thinking that way, we're not getting together to talk about the coming persecution, we're coming together to talk about the harvest. We're going to talk about the harvest because thousands of people are coming to know Christ, and we want to know how we can better disciple and better serve those people.
2: One of those persons who has been impacted by the ministry of the Church of the Nazarene during these times is a young woman named Yara, and we have a a video that tells her story.
4: Our life in Syria before the war was good. It was normal. I was living in a house with my husband and my daughter, and my family and his family lived around us. It was a normal and good life. When the war started, we had to leave our home immediately. We would sleep in different places. We slept at my cousin's place, my mom's place, my grandma's place. The last house that we were in was with my cousin. The last floor in the building fell while we were in the building. It was bombed. My cousin was injured in front of our own eyes. So we were very afraid. We had to leave. After that, we had to sleep three days in our car. We didn't have any place else to go. The emotional and psychological effect of the war was not just on the children, it was also on us, the adults. When we first came to Lebanon, because of the sounds of the bombings in Syria, my daughter would always hold my hand. She couldn't move from one place to another without someone holding her. She couldn't even sleep without someone being beside her. But even us, it took us a while to get over this fear. I came to know the church because I heard that they were registering families for help and we were in need. When I came, I was clueless. I said, If only once I want to enter and see what they do. I entered, and I felt at ease. And perhaps I met the Lord through these new friends, and I forgot all my troubles. I just felt at ease within the church. Initially, I came to the church to get some help but when I came to the church again I met one girl who treated me like she knew me for a long time like we were close friends and I felt at ease around her and she invited me to come on Sunday she told me you can come and I will go and pick you up so she picked me up and I entered the church and again I felt like this was what I was missing. Then I prayed to my God, and I said, If Jesus Christ is the true God, then show me this in a dream. And then the next day, I fell asleep quickly. And in the dream, I saw the same picture of Christ I had seen in the church. And he was telling me, I am the true Lord. So I woke up. And I said, no, maybe I'm just imagining stuff. Let me try again. So again, I slept. And again, I saw the same dream over and over again. Then I experienced Jesus in my life. I started attending church. And perhaps I've always wanted this, But back in Syria I couldn't really do this you can't walk into a church in Syria if you can you have to do it while in hiding but here in Lebanon it's different perhaps I was always missing this and I always wanted to know this and now I'm glad I'm attending church and I think the Lord for everything.
2: I love this video and I've seen it so many times, but there are so many things that, uh, that have moved my heart. One is how young a person this is for her life to be turned upside down. Another is the joy that is so evident in her face as she tells her story. And then I love what she says to us. She says that it's as if I were always looking for this. You don't have to be a theologian to understand this, that God's grace is at work in this world. And we call it prevenient grace. Missionaries don't go because they think they can do wonderful things and they're just waiting for them to get there. They go because God's grace has gone before us. And His grace is at work, and we are praying that lives will intersect, that our lives will intersect at a time when His grace has been pulling them into Him. Now, I couldn't wait to meet Yara. Lindo had met her before me, and we were at a district assembly in, in Beirut, and I got there early, had to sit in the front. He was on the platform looking and looking for her. Finally, she came in and sat in the back, and I was very excited. This was my moment. But I glanced back, and she was gone, and I gave Linda the look. When we've been married 42 years, we don't have to say words to communicate any. sometimes. (laughs) I won't say all the time. (laughs) But I looked at him, and he gave me a nod. He was sitting on the platform, could see she was outside. And I gave him a look like, I'm going now. Don't stop me. And I got up, and I walked down the aisle, and I began to pray, Lord, please help her to understand my Arabic. We may not... Be in the same dialogue or something, but I want to tell her some things. I got out there and I gave her a big hug and I said to her, "Thank you so much for sharing your story. We've shown that video all across America, and it has moved people. Your face has become the face of the refugee, and I want you to burn her face in your imagination because as you, these re- refugee numbers get so big and so overwhelming, it's just to, you can start just seeing a number." Instead of a soul and a face that God loves. Well, I didn't tell her all that stuff. But I did promise her that people were praying for her. And she told me how hard it was. Her husband found out she was a believer. He has divorced her. He went back to Syria, working with, uh, being part of one of the uh, splinter groups that is down there. And her family has found out. And the only family she has is the church. But she's still been faithful to the Lord. Now, our churches are doing a wonderful thing. Uh, we little talked about them saying, We're not, this is the time of the harvest. One of our pastor's wives said, I got a call from a Syrian woman who is highly educated, a professor in the university. She called and said, how do you become a Christian? I'm fed up with Islam. I want to become a Christian. Well, it was in her head. It probably wasn't in her heart yet, but that's how God is working. He's turning them from a way of darkness and disappointment into the hope and the healing that Jesus gives, and so our churches they we believe that it, we are doing a disservice to jesus name if we don't take care of people's physical needs as much as we can, whether here in the states or somewhere and our pastors do it at great risk now, remember that the Christians are a minority the most part the population in the Middle East is ninety to 98 percent muslim but they don't worry about it you know i I, and I need to tell you something that's really important is that they learned that because they lived under dictators and under kings and that the politics are going to come and go and if you're counting on your political power and clout to make a difference you're putting your trust in something else they would want me to tell you that and that our hope is not in the powers, but in the powerful one named Jesus to change our world. And we do it. And we're called to do that. We're called to change our world for Jesus, whether it's here or abroad. So our pastors have meetings. And, and how many of you would feel comfortable if a covered lady, a whole world of them, came and sat in your church? They're not intimidated. They're welcoming in, and they're... They're sharing with them that the hope that they have in Jesus. And we are so proud of them. We're proud of our missionaries in Europe. And if God works the details out and we're, we're going to go and we're going to do some ministry to the refugees, we would love to be able to do that. We're planning on it. We just don't know what, how it's going to work out. But we are so thankful for a church that hasn't given up on the hard place, for people who are there willing to go where God tells them to.
1: One of my good friends in Jerusalem was a neighbor uh, who didn't really want us in the building. In fact, wanted to buy our apartment to get us out of the building. And then he eventually, because I'd helped him when he was very ill, he became one of my good friends. But he said to me one day, he came over and he said, you know, this is so dreadful what's happening in the Middle East right now. He said, what is the church going to do? And he's an Orthodox Jewish man. And I said, well... Um, I am thankful for a church, and not just the church of the Nazarene, but I'm thankful that the body of believers feels compassion, the compassion of the Lord, and we're wanting to reach out to these people who are suffering and who are struggling. The church of the Nazarene, we have about 35 churches of the Nazarene there in the Middle East right now. We have four schools. And we have a TV program that every week, in fact, during Lent, it, we have a program every single night that's at prime time. And a young man who was a professional musician who came to Christ is now one of our pastors. He sings and plays and, and speaks to people, gives, shares testimonies. Um, And every night during Lent, people are hearing about the good news. And and he's getting an overwhelming response. It's been amazing. But our church doesn't give up on the hard places. And, you know, that's really why we came today. Because, as I said, this is not just our report. But it's it's our report. Because you have been faithful to give. You've been faithful to pray. And you know that you have family over there. Yara, her family left her, but she does have family. She has a, a family of believers around the world. And I believe that you'll pray for her. And you'll pray for others who have come to Christ. You do have family there. And when you see news clips and you see the terrible uh, conditions over there, just think, I have family. And if I had a military son or a daughter or father or mother or someone in my family in the military, I would pray. Well, our family is fighting different battles over there. They're fighting different battles. And and these battles are very important for them. So we need to be sure to pray for them. But also this is your weekend of faith promise it's not a time where you say well I guess I'll give a little bit of this and that to help send other missionaries and by the way we want to thank you for your support because we were able to be there over 35 years to uh, because of people being generous to send us but also people praying but we have a daughter who is on the mission field now our daughter and son-in-law are in France serving in the church of the Nazarene and uh, it's a very hard challenging country Post-Christian, post-modern, and yet the church of the Nazarene has sent them, and people like you support them. So thank you, and they're loving their ministry. They're planning an indigenous church, a French church there, and uh, it's wonderful to see what God is doing. But this is your faith promise. It's a time that God may be asking you again to serve him through your giving. Your uh, concern for the lost of the world and your commitment to see them brought to Christ actually comes not from us as missionaries or not even from your pastor, but it actually comes from the very heart of God. For still he is concerned about those great cities. Remember he said to Jonah, wouldn't you know that I would be concerned about that great city? Well, God is still concerned about the cities and the peoples of this world. So thank you so much for um, helping us to take the gospel there. But also for you participating. And uh, we are blessed because of of a church that doesn't give up on the hard places. So the Lord bless you and thanks again for inviting us to be here with you. Lord bless you.
0: Thank you, thank you. Well, I trust that you were blessed the way I was by hearing this report from Lindell and and Kay. Uh, it's exciting for me and uh, for us as a, as a family to to have real live missionaries in front of us representing the 700 plus that you support, whether you know it or not, week in and week out. And I just want to remind us as we prepare to to make our faith promise to the Lord. Now what is this thing again what 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 are we doing brady what's with the pink card if if you're new around grace point or you're unfamiliar with faith promise this is it's different than a pledge a pledge is maybe what i i covenant that i can do in my own strength but this is saying lord i feel like you've put an amount on my heart that i need you to show up in and and lord as you make this possible i want to be obedient to to give this now hundred percent of your faith promise is going to go to our world evangelism fund it doesn't go to this local church it's, it's going to help make missions uh, ministries work all around the globe and in whether you know this or not this church for decades decade upon decade upon decade has been so strong in supporting the mission work around the globe and and i know it's your heart for that to continue so i want to challenge you if you've not already marked your card let's just take some time right now and as, as edgar plays let's uh Let's prayerfully ask the Lord, is what I have written down what you've told me or or what I've decided? Or, Lord, I'm looking at a blank card. Would you put on my heart what it is you're calling me to personally do in this faith promise? Let's take a moment to do that. As you take the next number of moments to finish filling out your faith promise cards, a couple reminders. This is between you and the Lord. We we turn in the cards and we'll share a tally of of what the Lord has placed on all of our hearts together. And we'll celebrate uh, how we are getting closer to our goal. But uh, if you ask us next week or next month or in six months, could you remind me of my faith promise amount? We're going to say you need to talk to the Lord about that because we don't have that. We don't keep track of it that way. So maybe you're going to do what I've done. Maybe you take a, a picture of it with your phone to kind of remember what you've done. Or maybe you want to write it down in another place. But I challenge you as we give right now. Let, in fact, let's let's pray together. Ushers, would you come? And let's ask the Lord to bless our sacrificial obedience as he stirs our hearts. Heavenly Father, we realize this morning that your resources are in our hands. You've entrusted them to us to be stewards of what you've intended to not only bless here, but also around the world. And Lord, as we're doing our best to listen to you and what you're prompting us, Lord, we don't make this as a uh, a pledge or something we do in our own strength, but Lord, in faith, we give this promise to you. And we thank you in advance for the miracle stories that we will be able to tell and how you have provided. You have blessed us, not for our own good, so we could bless others. Thank you, Jesus, for what you are doing in our hearts in this moment. So we give this faith promise to you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. As Dr. Cunningham shared in the video we saw, and as Lyndall and Kay reiterated, there's not much hope in a governmental system or in a political power, but our hope and strength is in Jesus himself. Our hearts have been encouraged today to hear a report of what Jesus is still doing around the world, but even deeper than that, I believe there's some here today that when we hear about this provenient grace, this grace that goes ahead of us, it's a reminder to you that your hope needs to be so strong in Jesus, He's going ahead of you before you even know it. Would you stand with me?